Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. Today's show is an episode of another podcast called Invisible Forces. It's hosted by insiders at Jeffries, Shannon Murphy and Aaron Shea. They dive into unseen influences that are dramatically changing the global economy. I really enjoyed season one of their show. Shannon and Aaron do a great job weaving some surprising stories alongside research from subject matter experts at Jeffries. They recently launched season two, and it looks five years into the future to understand where we'll live, how we'll live, and what we'll buy. What follows is the first episode of season two. It discusses the pandemic and asks questions like, should a jigsaw puzzle manufacturer count as an essential business? I hope you enjoy the show, and I suspect you will. If you like what you hear, search for Invisible Forces anywhere you listen to podcasts. Our last estimate was approximately 500 acres worth of leafy greens we left in the field. Suddenly, in a matter of days, they had lost their entire market. The jigsaw puzzle manufacturers have been unable to keep up with the demand. It's, uh, it's been an, an anarchy, frankly. There's no doubt about it. We are living in interesting times. The number of new cases from the coronavirus, or COVID-19, rose again today. We are continuing to track the financial effects of the coronavirus. The pandemic has countries searching for gloves and face masks. 2020 has been a year of enormous change to life as we know it. The forces that propel our markets have gone into overdrive. And even though most of these influences can't even be seen, they are visibly affecting everything from what we eat to how we spend our spare time. I'm Shannon Murphy. 
And I'm Erin Shea. This is Invisible Forces, an original podcast from Jeffries. For our second season, we're investigating the unseen influences that drive our spending, our saving, and our global economy. Things like fortification, customization, and urbanization. We're asking, in five years, how will we be living? Where will we be living? What will we be buying and why? And today, we're asking, how will we be getting these things? The invisible force we're looking at in this episode is localization and revolutionary changes in the $10 trillion global supply chain. From medical equipment to fresh produce, jigsaw puzzles to kettlebells, we're looking at the changing nature of where things come from and how they move, from global to more local. We might remember 2020 as that crazy year when pictures of empty store shelves were going viral on a daily basis. It should come as no surprise that when the pandemic hit earlier this year, it had a huge and immediate impact on the global and local supply chain. The influence of localization didn't just show up in our communities, but literally in our very own kitchens. That's when it hit home for so many of us, when COVID shutdown started to affect how we shopped and what we needed or wanted to buy. Amidst a baking bonanza, it became hard to source even the most basic supplies like flour or sugar. And it wasn't just what we were eating. With gyms closed across the country, exercise equipment became nearly impossible to find because everyone wanted to start working out at home. One example were kettlebells. Usually they're forged in China. And obviously it's not a product that just any local company can replace. But there was a Rhode Island foundry that was able to make the change and so started forging kettlebells to fill some of that demand. And more serious was the widely reported shortage of personal protective equipment for frontline healthcare workers and ventilators for COVID patients. Some manufacturing companies across North America pivoted their production to make PPE and ventilators to fill the need. So the pandemic was obviously a major disruption. It created some unexpected demands and it caused a lot of immediate and obvious challenges across many dimensions of supply chains. But these changes and the cracks that COVID exposed and accelerated, these are things that have been shifting for a long time. We talked to some of Jeffrey's leading experts who will tell you all about how the trend towards even more localization is affecting us. Plus, we'll share some stories about the unexpected places we can see this invisible force at play. To start us off, I got a chance to speak with our chief financial economist, Aneta Markoska. Since we're exploring some of the unique dimensions of the global supply chain, we should start with one of the dynamics that's really defined the last few decades, the relationship between the U.S. and China. And the beginning really was the 1990s when a lot of emerging economies started to build out their manufacturing bases and export. And the culmination of that was 2001 when China officially joined the WTO, the World Trade Organization, and became a massive supplier of anything manufactured to the rest of the world. And at the time, you know, China had a significant, a true cost advantage. If you take 
all costs into consideration, it was roughly 15 percentage points cheaper to produce in China versus the U.S. back in the early 2000s. So any company that can just pick up its manufacturing facility and outsource it to China, it, it really was a no-brainer. So it triggered this massive outsourcing trend. Annette says that a lot of developed economies actually figured this out pretty quickly and to try and stay competitive, started lowering their corporate tax rates. We didn't, which, you know, put us at a further disadvantage. So that really caused this flight of U.S. manufacturing out of the U.S. over uh, almost two decades. When you fast forward to 2015 and 16 and look at the cost gap between the U.S. and China, what you will find is that China's competitive advantage was pretty much fully eroded by then. So it was no longer, you know, that compelling to just simply produce in China, and especially if you're selling to the U.S. consumer. And then fast forward even further to early 2018, corporate tax cuts kind of finally just completely leveled the playing field between U.S. firms that produce here in the U.S. and the rest of the world. So I think even before the trade war and even before covid you had all the elements in place to really start to see production return to the United States. So Aneta says domestic manufacturing was already starting to come back. The pandemic just made it more urgent. To dive a little deeper into what this means, here's Storm Duncan. I run our global mobility franchise at Jefferies, which is a group that is focused on technologies which facilitate the movement of people, packages, or food. So you're kind of perfectly positioned for our first question. Could you talk a little bit about how supply chains have fared in the time of COVID-19 or really the last six months? And is it different for different industries? I think what we saw during COVID was a realization by a number of governments and citizens and people of influence that the supply chains, once disrupted, really put their countries in a vulnerable position around food or other critical supplies. And so I think what you're going to see um, as a result of that are a couple different things. One is a lot more isolationism amongst nations, which means that that's going to disrupt the global supply chains. And I think you're going to see global supply chains develop internally within geographies, whether that's a country or a, a group of countries that are cooperating, for lack of a better way of putting it, like a European coalition, as an example. And then I think you're also going to see um, the, you know, some significant evolution of historical supply chains that are inconsistent with that. You know, So you could see the geopolitics, as well as the fear of not having a um, domestic supply, impacting the supply chains between Asia and the United States, as an example. And how about specifically for the U.S.? You focused a lot on geopolitics, and I know this is kind of a tough election year to truly read the tea leaves, but how, how are you thinking about U.S. supply chains right now? So the U.S. is in a very fortunate position in its history right now, um, some due to some uh, good geographic things and some due to good luck, I suppose. So in the U.S., 85% of our food supply is produced within the country, and we waste a fair amount of food, too. The estimates on wasted food are somewhere around 30 to 50% of our food goes to waste. So in a crisis and with thoughtful consumption of food, we could probably be very self-sufficient almost immediately. 
So what does that mean? I think that what that means is, is a lot of the um, supply chains within the U.S. that were heavily dependent upon um, bringing in commodities and um, finished products from overseas will still exist because we're still a capitalistic and a consumption-based economy. We'll hear more about disruptions within our food supply chain from Storm later. Storm's talking about a consumption-based economy. And a lot of times, supply chain issues stem from consumption declining. But what happens when demand is off the charts and the supply itself is challenged? Especially when it comes to a product that has always seemed fairly neutral, but under the right circumstances, can become absolutely essential. Pieces are kind of small on this one. Um, and edge pieces know. are good first. One of the more unexpected things that the pandemic caused a run on earlier this year jigsaw puzzles. We received multiple emails and phone calls from our consumers uh, in them suggesting that we should petition, really, to be an essential business. Nagendra Reina is the CEO of Buffalo Games, the largest puzzle manufacturer in North America. And the unexpected demand for puzzles created by the pandemic has been massive. Because no one could go anywhere or take part in group activities like concerts or movies, Everyone needed things they could do locally, from the safe isolation of their living rooms. The pandemic demand curve was well above any expectation that we may have had with people being quarantined. If we had about a year's worth of product in our inventory, that that would have been shipped out in the third week of March. That was sort of the demand curve that we faced back then. Ever since the lockdown started... People have been trying to function cooped up at home, and they've turned to jigsaw puzzles as a traditional form of entertainment. That's Ann Williams. She has the enviable job of puzzle historian. She's also written a book called The Jigsaw Puzzle, Piecing Together a History. I think the situation today is in some respects comparable to the Great Depression of the 1930s. A lot of people are out of work. A lot of people have seriously reduced incomes. And a lot of people are looking for things that will entertain them at home without having to go out. But jigsaw puzzles were a very inexpensive way to pass the time. Anybody who had been laid off or lost their job in manufacturing could manufacture jigsaw puzzles at home with the addition of a simple saw They cost about $20. They then could sell them to their neighbors or rent them out through the local drugstore or other retail outlets. They would rent a puzzle for five cents a day or maybe 25 cents for a week. So it was just like renting a movie today. Jigsaw puzzles were so popular that there were even pop songs about them. The jigsaw puzzle's incomplete. My heart does a jig and then it skips a beat. You made a jigsaw puzzle of my loving heart. We're not quite there yet. But it's not a coincidence that during two of the most uncertain times in American history of the past century, the popularity of puzzles has soared. There's so much chaos in the world right now. The puzzle is something that they can solve. They can't solve the problem of coronavirus. They can't solve their economic problems. But they can put a puzzle together, and it's very satisfying to be able to bring order out of chaos, even on a very 
small level. But there is one key difference between the booming puzzle industry of the 1930s and today's situation. And it's a really important one for manufacturers like Nagendra. While the puzzle boom of the Great Depression helped to create jobs, this year, puzzle manufacturers were forced to suspend operations due to the virus. We were still able to ship uh, some of our inventory. We converted from being a manufacturing unit to being a warehousing unit, but that inventory was evaporated within a few weeks, and we did not really have any puzzles to ship in mid-April and, and beyond. And here's where Nagendra had to do the opposite of what we've been talking about so far in this episode. Instead of going even more local... We shifted um, some of our production to China on a temporary basis. Buffalo Games is a company that's sort of caught in the middle of this changing supply chain and had to pivot mid-pandemic to meet soaring demand. When the virus hit China, we were thinking about, you know, how can we be less reliant on Chinese manufacturing? And then when the virus hit stateside, at that point, it was a role reversal because at that point, China was back up uh, producing product, but we couldn't make any ourselves. So I think what we've done over the last few months, which is to hedge our bets and to try and find other partners, try to spread out our supply chain, that I think it'll be more of the same. It'll be doubling down on making sure that we are not too dependent or not too reliant on a particular factory or a particular geographical zone, uh, frankly, anywhere in the world. So being able to supply his customers locally has been really important to Nagendra. But it's interesting to note that for him, localization was actually a limiting force when his local factory wasn't allowed to operate. So diversification is the key to his survival. Puzzles help to keep us calm, grounded, and busy in uncertain times. But unfortunately, the popularity of jigsaw puzzles isn't the only thing we currently have in common with the Great Depression. Disruptions caused by things like widespread unemployment or something like a global pandemic can throw supply and demand out of balance. And that can lead to the paradox of poverty amid plenty, especially when it comes to agriculture. Here's Storm Duncan again. Food has been very, very interesting. You know, at the same time that there were shortages of meat in grocery stores in some geographies, there was meat being um, slaughtered and thrown away um, or fed to animals, wild animals, non-wild animals, etc., primarily because the supply chain was set up um, to have these uh, commodities that were produced, whether it's meat or milk or whatever, delivered to certain different verticals. So there's like, you know, entire um, organizations that were set up to delivering to restaurants and others that were set up uh, for delivering to grocery stores and others that were set up for delivering to cafeterias. So while Nagendra had issues closing the loop between huge demand and limited supply, other people had trouble connecting their surplus supply with the people who needed it most. Our last estimate was approximately 500 acres worth of leafy greens that we left in the field and did not harvest at the end of March. A big economic hit. That's Jack Vesey. He's a fourth-generation lettuce farmer in California. And this year, most of his harvest went to waste. His business was focused on supplying food services companies, cafeterias, caterers, restaurants a market that almost entirely disappeared when the pandemic hit. We caught up with him on the road. That's why the sound is a little fuzzy. And I still, why couldn't you give it away? Well, 
you know, I'd love to go out there and harvest it and give it away, but there's, you know, if I'm sitting there losing money on an unharvested crop, I, I can't afford to go out and harvest the crop to give it away. It's a difference of, you know, if it was harvested somewhere we couldn't ship it, obviously that'd be straight to the food bank. But when it's in the ground and the market drops out from under you, you my father told me your first loss is your cheapest loss and your first loss was planting the crop. So there's, there are times when you just you decide to leave it in the ground and obviously that was one of them. Jack is one of the many farmers whose crops went to waste. Throughout the spring, we saw headlines about dairy farmers who were pouring out millions of gallons of milk daily. Chicken farmers who were forced to smash hundreds of thousands of eggs. Meanwhile, the news was also filled with images of empty grocery store shelves. How can there be way too much food and way too little food at the same time? How do you get all of this food to the people who need it? Evan Wig is trying to figure that out. I'm the Director of Communications and Membership here at CAF. That's Community Alliance with Family Farmers. So CAF is an organization that's been around for more than four decades here in California. Uh, We advocate for sustainable agriculture, for family farms, and for local food systems. A big part of that is trying to prevent waste. March hit, and suddenly news started coming out about the pandemic. And within one week, we saw... All the restaurants close, all the offices and companies, and of course, all the schools. And if you can just try to imagine the impact, the immediate impact on the supply chain, it just rippled out where, you know, you had farmers who sold 90 to 100 percent of of their products uh, directly to these distributors that sold to corporate cafeterias in San Francisco or to school districts. Um, suddenly, in a matter of days, they had lost their entire market. Now, meanwhile, we also saw on the flip side of that, CSAs. So these are the folks who, who are selling those those box subscriptions. You know, they really have a, a focus on connecting folks with the source of their food, knowing where your food comes from, who your farmer is, and it's hyper-localized. By the way, CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, You've probably heard it used in the context of a CSA box, a weekly or monthly box of produce you can order from a collective of local farmers. Because the supply and demand was so radically and quickly off kilter as a result of everything that happened, what we, what we ended up doing was, was we realized that you know, we were getting phone calls left and right and left and right from um, farmers saying like, Hi, can you help me sell these, you know, these fruits? Can you help me sell these eggs? Can you help me like... And there was no, you know, coherent system in place for immediate market reallocation. So Evan and his group helped connect farmers directly with food buyers, rerouting the supplies right to local families. I think that's one of the big lessons we learned is that when, when something like this happens, a lot of folks, well, while you certainly have a certain contingent of the consumer population that is more focused on uh, stocking up at Costco and, and you know, filling their pantries with toilet paper and canned goods. Uh, there's also a, a, a contingent of the population that recognize that, that right now we need to be focusing on health and, and localization. And so we also had this huge surge in uh, a lot of local food procurement and, and direct-to-consumer purchasing. Even for the small-scale family farmers that Evan works with, their methods of doing business will never be the same especially as the desire for locally produced food grows. Unlike back in March when people had no idea what to expect, 
I think right now, even if we do see a big resurgence, um, I think our, our food industry is a little more prepared to adapt and to come up with new models. Um, so I think they're all coming up with backup plans and, and backup plans for their backup plans. Uh, we may be entering into a, a whole new economic model for uh, food purchasing that uh, folks are just going to have to adapt to in, in the coming months and years. Farmer Jack Vesey has come to the same conclusion. So I think the learning lesson is a, from a business standpoint is, is to have a mix of customers and try not to be wholly focused on one segment of our business in regards to the buy side. Where our puzzle maker Nagendra realized he needs to diversify his supply side, Jack Vesey and other food producers are realizing that they need to diversify who they sell to. Okay, we've ordered our puzzles and we're subscribed to our CSA boxes. But where things are being made and grown is only part of the supply chain story. The most important link in these chains, how will we be getting these things? It's time to bring back our global mobility expert, Storm Duncan. So I think what you saw during this crisis was a realization that the what we call contactless delivery uh, is a better and more sustainable future, both from an economic perspective, because it has the potential to be a more cost efficient method of transportation of products, uh, but it also has the potential to be a safer form of transference of things. Uh, So I think the resulting output of this was a huge governmental effort, a huge industry effort to realize that maybe we need to start thinking about a future of distribution, especially last mile, um, where you're coming into direct contact with the consumer of whatever you're delivering, of making that more contactless and more automated. Automation. That's a huge piece of how we'll be receiving the things we buy as the trend towards more localization continues. Sherrod Agarwal is the Senior Vice President of Easy Mile, an autonomous vehicle software company. His company is developing tools to get you things faster with fewer humans in the delivery chain. Autonomous vehicles have been around in lots of different environments for a long time, but they've been primarily on fixed pathways. Just like if you, you get out the airport, you'll be on the train. That's autonomous. Uh, often in warehouses, you might see autonomous robots or autonomous uh, AGVs. So I think that there has uh, been a lot of autonomous over the past. But the last few years, really, the, the growth in this new AI and, and LiDAR technology has accelerated that growth. Automation is key during this moment of social distancing, helping manufacturers, drivers, and everyone in between stay safe. And these changes might mean that automation is sped up as companies try to get us our goods as quickly and safely as possible. Sherrod says that in a few years, our supply chain might look totally different than it does now. Well, I think the the technology for last mile delivery, that's generally going to be the first to be disrupted. You could see, a just using an example, like a UPS truck would park on a corner and you could have a numerous number of robots or small delivery vehicles that are going out to people's homes. That technology for short distance travel, low speed is pretty much ready today. I'm looking forward to the day a robot is delivering my UPS order. But truly, the supply chain is ripe for disruption and innovation is happening all over the world. For example, Wing, the delivery drone company, has been piloting delivery projects in Virginia. And this year, they partnered with a coffee shop down there. Imagine a drone delivering your morning coffee. Unless I'm out of half and half or I'm in quarantine, I find that pretty hard to picture. We'll try to picture this. In Bruges, the brewery Halfman wanted to avoid congestion as they moved their beer from the brewery to the bottling factory. 
So they built a beer pipeline underneath the city streets. The supply chain is changing faster than we could have expected and faster than we might have wanted. But perhaps this is an opportunity for innovation, creative disruption, and localization. And remember my conversation from the top of the show with Jeffrey's chief financial economist, Anetta Markoska? She's actually got a pretty rosy view of the future. I mean, if you start with the premise that the world is now a lot flatter in terms of innovation, advancement, ability to produce products at kind of roughly the same cost, then you have to conclude that it makes sense to then produce ultimately very close to your final demand. It obviously cuts down on your transportation costs. It cuts down on time to market. I think it it leads to greater innovation. What we typically see that, you know, when you put manufacturing facilities right next to the R&D group, to your engineers and very close to customers, that tends to be much more conducive for faster innovation cycles. So I think all of that argues for, at least to some extent, production coming back to the U.S. Better innovation faster. A shorter distance between maker and buyer. Shifts in the supply chain are going to hit pretty much every facet of our lives, from food consumption to medical supplies, and even how we entertain ourselves. The invisible force of localization has been at play for years, but it's accelerating all the time because of consumer demand and disruptions like the global pandemic. That's why it's so important for these changes to be top of mind when innovative leaders are thinking about their businesses heading into the next decade. I'm Erin Shea. And I'm Shannon Murphy. This is Invisible Forces, an original podcast from Jefferies. Be sure to subscribe now so you never miss an episode. And if you want to hear more, visit www.jefferies.com slash invisible forces. On the next show, we've tailored an episode specifically to all your podcast preferences. We'll be talking about the trend towards customization in everything from the cosmetics industry to cancer treatment. Talk to you then. Important information and additional disclaimers are available at jeffries.com. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Jeffries entity to the audience. It's not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security or investment. This podcast is being provided strictly for informational purposes only. Any opinion or estimates constitute our best judgment as of the date of the podcast and are subject to change without notice. The information upon which this podcast is based was obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but has not been independently verified and should not be relied upon as an accurate representation of future events. No responsibility is accepted and no representation, undertaking, or warranty is made or given, in either case expressly or impliedly, by Jeffries as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of the information contained herein, or as to the reasonableness of any assumptions on which any of the same is based. Any views or opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individuals identified.
Accordingly, neither Jeffries nor any of its officers, directors, employees, or representatives will be liable for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person resulting from the use of the information contained herein, or for any opinions expressed by any such person, or any errors, omissions, or misstatements made by any of them. Jeffries is not an advisor as to legal, tax, accounting, or regulatory matters in any jurisdiction and is not providing advice related to such matters. Listeners of this podcast should take their own independent advice with respect to matters discussed.